This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This morning, the Premier-designate uh, Doug Ford met up with his 76 MPs for a caucus meeting. What happened? Let's bring in Alan Carter, anchor, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. He is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Scott, always great to be on with you. So what's the objective of today? Is this sort of like a preschool meet the teacher day? <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of like that. A bit of a kind of homecoming uh, along with meet the new kids sort of a thing where, you know, you have the returning MPPs from the uh, PC caucus, pretty much all of them reelected, uh, and then all of these new members as well, all sort of meeting together, and then a big rally and a stump speech by Mr. Ford, who really didn't have anything to say, at least not when the prying eyes of the camera were there, just sort of repeated some of his uh, campaign rhetoric, and then uh, oddly sort of pointed at the back door and said, thank you, media, just, and then pointed again at the door and said, well, you're not leaving, you're not moving, go. And just kind of threw us all out. <laughs> wow. So uh, what do you think happened once you guys were all turfed? What, what, what's this about behind closed doors? What do you think's being well, said? Well, I think it's, you know, talking about some priorities, uh, talking about, you know, some, just some basics on, on how things are going to be run. I mean, these new MPPs, many of them were at Queen's Park yesterday for their first day of orientation. And that's, that's more about figuring out the ropes as an MPP. But now within the actual caucus itself, they have to figure out, you know, how does that work within the progressive conservative party? Like who's going to be the whip? Who's going to, you know, who answers to whom and all of that sort of stuff. And of course, they have to get around to the business of actually choosing a cabinet. You know that jockeying has been going on behind closed doors already, but that still now is going to get underway in, in earnest with all of the members there. How big a learning curve is this for the new ones? It's pretty big. Um, I remember my first day at Queen's Park in uh, 2011 as bureau chief. I mean, I'd been to the park a couple times before that, but you know, just to just to find your way around physically around the building can be intimidating. And, you know, and then there's, you know, there's just the question of security and the things you can do and you can't do. Now, as an MPP, you pretty much, you know, there's nothing you really can't do or can't, well, any places you can't go, uh, you know, unlike members of the media, where you're more restricted. But, you know, it is still a learning curve. And then there's going to be the learning curve of the actual legislature itself. You know, there are very strict rules of decorum and how you are supposed to act when in the, when in the legislature, when in session. And yesterday, the outgoing uh, speaker, was demonstrating one of the key ones, which is when the speaker stands up, you sit down. Hmm. <laughs> so um, uh, how much of what goes on in these meetings will they actually talk about platform? Because costing things like that weren't even really talked about during the campaign. Uh, Patrick Brown had the People's Guarantee out ahead of time. Uh, again, we, we, we've seen, you know, uh, we've got a, an idea in the past who the caucus and, and who would be a part of all of this and who would be a part of his inner circle and such. But uh, at the end of the day, when are we going to sort of hear the, the, the meat and potatoes of what this party stands for? Well, that's a good question. Um, and in terms of costing, I don't, we're not going to see anything until after the line-by-line audit is completed. And Mr. Ford was asked about that and when that will get underway. And he says he, he was rather vague about precisely when that will begin. They say the transition is underway. Does that uh, buy him like six months or a year until he gets that done? I, it likely buys him uh, until, I'd say, mid-fall. I think by that point, you know, like, you know, I'd say midway through the session, He's going to have to have something in terms of saying where the current 
uh, books are. I don't think he needs to outline his own personal agenda and his you know, finance till he actually presents a budget, and that can wait till as late as next year. Uh, what about size? Does size matter here? Uh, one of the biggest cabinets uh, since the, the Harris days. Um, I guess conservatives, we'd think of smaller government. Are, are you surprised about the size here? The size of the cabinet? Yes. Well, of course, we don't know yet, but he's talking about 20-odd, you know, and that's, pretty, that's, that's considerably down um, from where it was. And also the conservatives, remember, complained very loudly about the number of people that the liberals made uh, parliamentary secretaries or, um, you know, deputy ministers, that sort of thing, because that all comes with a bump in pay, too, right, um, in terms of your MPP salary. So, you know, if Mr. Ford is going to do what he said he's going to do, which is really cut back on the, on the spending, I think there's going to be a far fewer of those. Uh, hiring freeze. Uh, he 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 obviously mentioned this and the, the the change in cap and trade prior to even being sworn in. Uh, an eager beaver here. Unusual for uh, uh, an incoming uh, premier to start like this before even being sworn in. No, not at all. I mean, Mr. Ford is looking to capitalize on the momentum and on the you know enormous majority he just won with forty percent of the vote. And so he's going to want to move rather quickly on some of these key promises because, you know, in politics, you have, you know, you have a wind behind you, a momentum, and he's got it right now, and a mandate. So, you know, even though the opposition can do little in the House to stop anything over the next four years, it's going to be key for Mr. Ford to get moving on some of these big promises early on. Uh, he, of course, came right out and talked about a hiring freeze in the public sector. How is that resonating with Ontarians? Um, remember what happened to Tim Hudak when he said we was going to fire 100,000 employees. Uh, and, and then, of course, in the end, it was through attrition and, and he just didn't really clearly state that. Uh, that being said, the public doesn't seem to be too upset with what he's announced so far. Well, no, and it's a significantly different thing to say hiring freeze than it is to say yeah. we're going to cut 100,000 jobs. Yeah. And Mr. Hudak found that out to his, uh, to his own detriment, his own political detriment. Um, and, of course, the difference here also is that Mr. Ford's already in power. Uh, you know, the NDP writing a letter today, Andrew Horvath writing a letter today asking for more details on this hiring freeze and how it's going to work because we don't really have a ton of details. We have a uh, secretary of cabinet essentially issuing a a memo to department heads just basically saying don't do anything until everybody's in place so right. you know like there's no you know no no spending no hiring until the uh, new government is in place so we, we're there's a little bit of distance we have yet before we find exactly how it's going to play out uh another uh, obviously mentioned cap and trade and getting out of this deal with uh quebec and and california did he mention anything more about that today and what happens w- with the prime minister is he on a collision course with the prime minister on this well, of course, he did mention the end of cap and trade today, but he didn't mention anything in the way of details, which is, if you've been covering Mr. Ford, is pretty much right on character. You know, he talked about it's a terrible tax and it's gone. I'll tell you, it's it's finished to the, you know, to the loud applause and cheering of his caucus. But all of these details that you're talking about, about things like, okay, what happens if uh, Trudeau does try and enforce um, a carbon tax on Ontario? 
does the federal government have the jurisdiction to do so? The prevailing wisdom is yes. Um, and, and of course, what does it mean in terms of legal liabilities with California and Quebec? Are we, as a province, going to be opening ourselves up for possible lawsuits for you know canceling and exiting this program in the way would, that we are planning to do? Again, we don't know, other than Mr. Ford saying that they've looked at it and they don't think there's much risk. Uh, talk a little bit about bench strength here. Uh, Lisa McLeod, Christine Elliott back out of retirement, uh, Caroline Mulroney. How do these help? How will they help shape uh, this government moving forward? Well, obviously, Mr. Ford has, and he, he made a point again today of saying about the you know, all-star team that he has assembled in the room. He does have you know many ways to go in terms of choices, in terms of both experienced MPPs and also some new faces with outside experience. But part of the problem, Scott, is going to be there's 76 of them, or 75 if you don't count Mr. Ford, of course. It, and so there's going to be one tier that will be in cabinet, and then there'll be another tier that will be waiting to get in cabinet, and there'll be a third tier that are you know, really, really hoping sometime later in the mandate to get elevated, and then a fourth tier who will totally recognize that there's just absolutely no shot whatsoever to ever get any job beyond being an MPP. And I tell you what, a couple years from now, let's go check with those people because, you know, they won't have anything to lose and the government won't have any sort of, you know, real carrot or stick against them. And that's where some of the dissatisfaction sometimes comes from. Uh, What do you think the chances are of uh, Doug Ford allowing the Liberals' official party status? That's a good question. You know, there's been a lot of speculation back and forth on that and whether he should do it. I, I mean, I'm of the mind that it doesn't make much sense. It certainly doesn't make sense if you look at the logic on the last time the the, the numbers were moved. Because last time around, when the NDP fell beneath what was previously official party status at 12, the reasoning was that, well, wait a minute, we just shrank the number of ridings significantly in Ontario. Mike Harris had just done that. There were far fewer ridings. So that that made sense that if we had fewer ridings to win, then the bar for official party status should be lower. Well, this time around, we added seats. Mm-hmm. So, so if anything, sure. you think they should be raised? It should be raised the threshold. Well, I mean, I, I, I certainly think that that's a pretty yeah. strong argument against lowering it. Uh, it's interesting how uh, Andrew Horbath just defers this question to Doug Ford. Yeah, well, that's what I would do too. I mean, it's a you know, there, it's a no win, right? You you do it, you're going to be there's going to be all kinds of questions about why and you know what's it cost the treasury and all kinds of other things and and, and if you don't do it, it's then not just a mean. case. It's just not a case of being a nice person. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, the, the, the downside is that we're like, well, he's such a meanie. Well, <laughs> you know, welcome to politics. How, uh, how and what are and, and what is Andrea Horvath and the NDP doing to prepare for their next role? Well, they met uh, and have you know, declared that they will keep uh, Mr. Ford in check. How they do that is, well, there's very limited tools within their arsenal in, in terms of official opposition. But they will try and, you know, continue to remind Mr. Ford that uh, only 40% of the population voted for him, which if you add up all the people who did not vote for him, obviously that's a majority. So they'll try and present that. I think what's going to be interesting is... How can you you keep presenting that argument when there's a three-party system? What's that? That 40% for him? Yeah. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's just, you know. That's, it's that's politics. I mean, why, why do we always get into this discussion after, you know, an election is over? We always question this, question that, the popular versus seats, da 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 da, da. They won. Let's move on. Uh, what what about the liberals here? What do they need to do? Uh, obviously, uh, quote today, they're doing some soul searching. Uh, how do they regroup from this? Well, the first thing they're going to have to do is find themselves a new leader. Uh, and that new leader is going to have to want to, you know, just get right down into the grass and right into the grassroots and all the church basements and all the backyard barbecues and try and rebuild this party. The party has still an apparatus which is in place. So it has a skeleton. It just now has no meat, and it also has no money to be able to, to rebuild. So it's going to be a long road back, but the first uh, the first priority for John Fraser is going to be just to try and reorient the party, get his caucus in place, get ready for the new session, and begin the process of looking for a new permanent leader. How how much of a discussion do you think they're having at this stage in regard to where the party ended up and bringing it back towards the center as opposed to the left to cut off Andrea Horvath? Well, you heard a lot of that on the campaign trail, at least I did privately from, you know, sitting MPPs, ministers would tell me, you know, we've we've gone too far to the left, we left our base, uh, and this is, you know, what's going to happen, as they all sort of suspected, was going to be, uh, you know, the reward for that. So I think there is a strong, strong current within the party that says we must go back to the center, we must be that big tent again, almost kind of what, you know, Patrick Brown tried to do with the conservatives, yeah, remember? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, Alan Carter's been with us, anchor in Queens Park, Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. president said yesterday or the other day he's directing the Defense Department to create a new Space Force. It's an independent sixth branch of the armed forces. Is this possible? How have we balanced space and exploration and the military in the past? Uh, let's bring in a clip from Dr. George Friedman, the author of The Future of War. says satellite-based information networks will be the battlefront in any future space warfare. The heart of it is going to be an attack in space. That's where Pearl Harbor takes place now. All right, and this is what Trump had to say. My administration is reclaiming America's heritage as the world's greatest spacefaring nation. All right, let's bring in Paul Delaney, professor of astronomy, York University. He's with us now. I'm guessing he's shaking his head. Paul, how are you today? <laughs> yeah, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> you know, I'm good. The summer is here. It's clear. The astronomy in me, astronomer in me, is happy. Yeah, very, very true. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I see you as a scientist looking at all of this and, and your passion for it and, and everything that it's meant to you over the course of your life. And now people are trying to Spoil that with warfare. How do you balance, and, and I'm, I'm sure this has been going on since the space race of the 60s, how do you balance space exploration and all the great things people like you try to do with military? 
Well, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, there's no two ways about that. I mean, the United Nations put out the Outer Space Treaty in 1967 trying to get in front of some of this type of activity. And I think you could probably say that in the first 20 years or so, from 57 through to the mid-70s, it was very largely a science-engaged arena. Uh, we were launching satellites for the first time, geostationary satellites to give us communications, uh, weather satellites off to the moon for science, the space race. And then, of course, you know, the Apollo-Soyuz test mission there in 75, hands across uh, the, the two major space nations. However, since then, we've been steadily moving in other directions. The, the science engagement of space is still there. But as you well know, the space shuttle and the Department of Defense were hand in hand for a long time. We, we went round and around and around Earth orbit for 30 years, not really advancing the exploits into space. In that period of time, the militarization was steadily growing, whether or not we want to admit it or not. And as uh, the clip stated at the beginning, you know, satellites and satellite warfare, the ability to choke off information flow to uh, your troops on the ground, that's really where it is likely to be in the next major confrontation. So Pearl Harbor in space is probably not too far wrong, but it will be satellites rather than people per se. So let's talk about that. What would this look like? What does this all mean? What, what, is, what is space warfare? Well, don't think of Moonraker and James Bond. We're not talking about deploying a shuttle with all sorts of space marines jumping out of the payload bay and, and meandering around in Earth orbit. It really is a matter of taking out your assets. Uh, now, you know, bear in mind, this is not really my forte. I'm, I'm somewhat knowledgeable, <laughs> like uh, some other people, but you know, it, it's yet to be written. But it really is the satellites. You know, we've got low Earth orbit satellites, we've got geostationary orbit, but all of them are engaged in the same activity, providing intelligence, insight, communication infrastructure for armed forces around the world. You take them out of the equation and you certainly hobble, you deplete the effectiveness of any force. So we've been seeing all three major nations, China, Russia, and the U.S., engage in how best to destroy satellites over the last 15 to 20 years. Do you do it with the brute force approach of knocking them out with a strategic missile, or do you take them out, blind them uh, with lasers from the ground, or do you just inhibit their ability to communicate, the, the downlinks, if you will, by trying to scramble their signals? It's those type of engagements that we're going to see, I suspect, if there is ever a major confrontation on the mm. surface of the Earth. So you're basically talking about destruction of information satellites that we all rely on every day for pretty much every aspect of life. That's exactly right. Every aspect of life. I mean, if you think about your day-to-day -day activity and what you don't do without computer infrastructure, mm -hmm. it's very minimal. I mean, you sleep and that's about it. You, <laughs> you, know, you know, my microwave, uh, you know, even for heating the food. Uh, but every aspect of our modern life is bound up in computers and a lot of that information flows through satellites so, so yeah you take that out that'll be a big problem how is this possible now do we have the technology to do this now why is it not happening now 
well, we do have the technology to do it. Why is it happening? Why is it not happening now? Well, I'm pleased to report that, by and large, the world is sort of at peace with each other. Right. Uh, we've got regional issues, if you will, uh, around the place. But the the big players, U.S., China, Russia, they're not going at each other directly at this point in time. You know, you could certainly suggest that they're niggling at each other in places like Syria and Afghanistan and a few other places. Uh, but they're really not going at each other hard. But if push comes to shove, uh, rest assured, they have the capabilities to demolish a lot of the satellite infrastructure that they each have. How do you recover from that? <laughs> yeah, isn't that a good question? I'm not sure is the answer. Uh, the, certainly there is enormous redundancy in the satellite system. We're not talking about one or two or even a thousand satellites. Each of those countries has got hundreds of satellites deployed in a multitude of redundancies, many of them hardened against attack, or at least radiation types of attack. Uh, so it would be a tough chore to take them all out simultaneously. But the sheer fact that President Trump has signaled the Defense Department that he wants them to start spending a little bit more time, effort, and energy uh, to engage this problem suggests to me that maybe, just maybe, uh, there is more afoot out there than we are aware of, and he wants to make sure that you now the U.S. is not caught flat-footed. Uh, what are the rules now when it comes to this sort of thing? Are there any? You talked about the UN. I mean, is there? Uh, what are the rules in place at this point? Well, at at the moment, the the it, it's it's a murky. <clears throat> excuse me, it is a bit of a murky area, uh, and and that goes for not just what you can and cannot do in low Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit, but when you're talking about going to the moon or going and picking up pieces of asteroids and so on. You know, who's uh, property is that, so as to speak. I mean, the U.S. went to the moon and planted six flags in the late 60s and 70s, but it's not a U.S. protectorate. It's, it's not a state of, of uh, the U.S. at all. The, at this point in time, the, the best governing document is the Outer Space Treaty that the U.N. put in place, 106 signatories from 1967. But it's not a particularly binding document. It, it lays out uh, a set of generalities whereby we basically play nice together that the domain of space is for the benefit of humankind, or I think they actually used mankind back then. Uh, but, you know, it, it's meant to be our collective domain, and we're not supposed to sort of go around messing it up. Nobody is allowed to lay claim. But you and I both know that you can challenge almost anything in a court of law, uh, and certainly there have been gentle nudges in that direction uh, over the last few years about, you know, let's go out and mine an asteroid. Whose material is that? And at the moment, the indications are that it's probably whoever goes out there and picks it up. But that doesn't mean that it's their asteroid, just their piece of the property, so as to speak. So all of this is going to come down to legal challenges if we ever get to the point of going back to the moon, going to Mars, and going on to other property areas. But Earth orbit is meant to be all of our domain. I remember way back when it was at the Reagan era when there was all sorts of talk about Star Wars systems and this sort of thing, and, and that was pretty much kiboshed quick. Is this in any way similar? Well, we say it was kibosh, but I mean, you can bet that a lot of it wasn't. It all just went undercover, shall we say. Right. There's a group called DARP in the U.S., which really develops a lot of really uh, 
interesting technology, shall we say. There's a small little space shuttle, for example, that runs around in Earth orbit that the Department of Defense uses, and it goes aloft for literally 500 days at a time, and it changes orbit, and it carries experimental equipment on board and so on. And, and that's just what we see. <laughs> Who knows what we are not seeing? So I suspect a lot of what we're talking about here as far as Space Defense Force and so on has its genesis back in the Star Wars Reagan era. But it never came to prominence because, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed and therefore a lot of the high-profile necessity of Star Wars dissipated. But I think it would be naive to suggest that it never really came to pass at some low level and exists as a part of the defense, the U.S. defense infrastructure today. So the Washington Post is reporting that uh, the Defense Department and the Pentagon, uh, that Trump has told them to create a new space force, an independent sixth branch of the armed forces. Initially, he said he conceived this as a joke and has offered few details about how all of this would operate. But uh, apparently he wants to now, thinking this is a good idea, establish this new branch of the military. Is this forward thinking or is this silly? <laughs> Um, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about the one. Um, <laughs> I, I think in a way we have to concede that it is forward thinking. Uh, again, it'd be naive to believe that we are not going to come into conflict with each other in the space environment. Right. Uh, and I am sure that the major players have already started thinking about, you know, their version of the army or the space marines in, in orbit. Uh, I hope it never comes pushed to shove. I hope we we become intelligent enough and moral enough that we don't repeat the errors of the past. But, you know, I'm not terribly confident along those lines. Uh, so, you know, yes, I think we have to grant that it is a little bit of forward thinking. Uh, I think he's also... Uh, playing the odds at this point in time. This plays up well to the people who want to assert U.S. dominance over this, that, and the other. Uh, he's got a few other issues on his plate at the moment, so deflecting away from sort of, you know, the immigration issue mm -hmm. is probably not a bad plan. So I think he's likely to be playing politics as well. But, you know, every U.S. president does that to one extent or another. Uh, what does it say to other world leaders by even bringing something like this up? What, how does Russia and China react to this? Oh, well, I suspect that it's already on their agendas and it's already happening. I, I, I don't think the U.S. has come at this uh, as a bolt out of the blue. Uh, my bet is that they've probably got some Suggestion, shall we say, that both China and Russia are already engaged in this activity. I mean, both Russia and China have got the ability to deploy people in Earth orbit. And remember, the U.S. does not uh, at this moment in time. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the uh, infrastructures that exist in both the Russian Space Federation and the Chinese Space Agency are very significant. Uh, and the U.S., I think, is a little bit concerned about both of those places deploying assets that are more significant than NASA and the U.S. Uh, going back to the moon, I wouldn't surprise me, in fact, if the next person who lands on the moon is a Chinese Takanot. So I, I think in many ways the uh, president of the U.S. is responding to an existing uh, need, shall we say, mm. to uh, keep abreast of this type of space-based uh, adversarial activity from Russia and China, even though there's no 
outward show of, of that activity at the moment, you can bet that uh, there are indications of it as far as NASA and the U.S. are concerned. Well, we certainly hear almost on a weekly basis of some sort of data breach, some sort of hack, some sort of cyber crime that's happened to uh, large or small companies uh, here back on Earth. Uh, so, you know, that seems like a, a critical enough issue. Now we're talking about the satellites that actually feed all of those. Is this just a matter of time? Because this literally could cripple the planet, could it not? Even more so than one of these hacks. Well, in a way, I, I, I think that is a worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to believe that there are enough checks and balances in place that you know wholesale losses of data, the crippling of, say, Wall Street or, or other economic engines that, that drive uh, the Western economies is sufficiently backed up, sufficiently protected that you might be inconvenienced for a few days, perhaps, or maybe a, a week or two while right. you reestablish it. Uh, but I... I I like to believe that my colleagues in the computer security, cybersecurity arena are sufficiently adept that there are safeguards. Uh, yes, we hear of leaks and we hear of breaches and so on and so forth. But if you think about it, what has taken place to date is nothing much more than inconvenient. Now, I know if, if your eyes data gets, gets breached, it, it, it feels a lot more personal than that. But on the global scale, at a societal scale, most of the breaches that have taken place at the moment I think, fall into the category of of annoyance. I would like to believe that we've got enough protection in place that it's never going to escalate much beyond that. But it would make for a great thriller movie, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It certainly would, absolutely. And we we have to be aware of it. I mean, you know, you you can't have your head in the sand and think it will never happen. You do have to actively, uh, you know, forge systems that will protect against it. Uh, And that's what happens. That's why we've got so many cybersecurity folks out there, why there are a lot of really good people graduating out of university university who do nothing but think about how to hack into other people's systems so they can harden their own against such attacks. That's the world we're living in today, Scott. So do you think the Space Force will ever take off? And would this mean more money uh, for, for, for companies like NASA or for organizations like NASA? I'd like to think it would mean more money for NASA, but I think it's just going to mean more money for people like the Department of Defense and DARPA. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the lines from President Trump is that he wants to see the U.S. back being the, the spacefaring leader. But we haven't seen that translate into money in NASA's pocket at the moment. And, and that is exactly in keeping with many of the preceding presidents, Obama and Bush and so on. They've, they've, they've trotted out a good line saying they want NASA to do more, to be bigger and better, to be able to reassert U.S. dominance in space as far as manned spaceflight is concerned, and none of them have written the check to allow it to happen. Uh, And in many ways, NASA has continued to hemorrhage. So this Space Force, I don't think, is going to see much more money towards NASA. I think the developments that we see as far as space transportation for you and I is going to come through the space tourism industry, the, the places like SpaceX, who wants to be able to deploy satellites cheaper than the United Launch Alliance and so on. I'm not convinced that we're going to see a lot more money flowing to NASA. Uh, I'm hoping that NASA's budget at least holds its own, so its terrific science will continue. But I don't think we're going to see NASA taking as much of a lead as far as human spaceflight is concerned as they have in the past. U.S. President Donald Trump talking about funding a new space force. Uh, and certainly, uh, if, if at anything, another interesting distraction to the U.S. presidency. Paul Delaney has been with us, <laughs> professor of astronomy at York University. As always, Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
My pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The modern record album as we know it. Is it a modern record album now? Uh, Reaching a milestone. 70 years as a 33 LP. 33 and a third, I guess. This doesn't include, obviously, going back to the days of the 78 and so on and so forth. Uh, but obviously, this form of delivery of music has been around for an awfully long time. To talk more about all of this, Alan Cross is with us, music journalist, internationally known broadcaster, and with us now. Alan, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. So, uh, considering, and I know this is specifically what you're talking about here with this article, and uh, of course you can find it on the uh, global website, Happy 70th Birthday to the Modern Record Album. Obviously, you're talking specifically about the LP here, and uh, coming from a 78 to uh, uh, an LP, a 33 LP, but considering how much delivery of music has changed over the last couple of decades, how did this version of music distribution last so long? I mean, you know, even go back before the LP to the 78 and such, this, this method of, of extracting music from a disc, uh, it, it lasted forever. And yet that seems to be gone as far as something to replace it. Well, it does. Uh, the rotating disc was first invented by Emil Berliner in the late 1900s. He came up with this idea that a flat disc that spun at whatever rate had uh, could, could store about four minutes of music per side. So you had an eight-minute record, and that became the heart and soul of recorded music in the industry that had spawned for about 50 years. But the problem was that these things were very fragile. They were made of shellac. Uh, it was hard to get shellac during World War II for a number of reasons. And the uh, Columbia Records was looking for some kind of competitive advantage when it came to selling music. So they used this substance called polyvinyl chloride that scientists had begun to use for sewer pipes and decided to make it into records. And it turns out what the thing that they made has been so durable and so um, long-lasting in terms of public affection that basically what was reintroduced at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel on June the 18th of 1948 is still the same kind of thing that we're using today. The only thing that really changed came in the late 1950s when people figured out how to put stereo sounds onto LPs. But essentially, what we're using today is the same thing that this dude named Edward Wallerstein introduced to the press corps in New York 70 years ago this week. So how do we stay so long with that format, yet now nobody seems to be as affectionate for any other format, whether you go cassettes, eight tracks, whether you go to compact discs, digital downloads, whatever. I mean, you know, even look at what Apple's doing now, and that's, you know, almost come to the end of its run. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that... Something so old should continue to last so long and outlive what's supposed to be superior format. I think it's just because it's the right size, it has the right feel, it offers lighter notes and album artwork in ways that none of those other formats do, and it's it's a very simple kind of technology. All you're basically doing is driving, uh, dragging a, 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 um, a diamond needle through a groove. And it's so simple that this is the technology that scientists put on the Voyager spacecraft. So whenever our future alien overlords finally intercept that thing, uh, they'll look at it, see instructions of, on how to build a turntable, and then play the record back. Hmm. It's, it's just a very, I don't want to say primitive, uh, 
but it's certainly a almost a, a, a deceptively simple way of storing audio. You and talk, it works so well. You talked about uh, liner notes and, and what the whole album experience was like, the the photography and, and even album design covers, that sort of thing. Is perhaps one of the reasons for the continuing vinyl resurgence is that we really haven't replaced the LP with anything? We haven't replaced, although the sound is better and the convenience is, is better, we still haven't got that thing that has captured our attention like the album does, whether it's liner notes or lyrics or what have you. No, it, it's really strange that we don't have the same sort of affection for the CD, do we? Maybe, maybe it's because you have to interact with it physically in so many ways. With the CD, you take it out of the case, put it on the, in, in the tray, and press play. Uh, with, with a piece of vinyl, you have to be a lot more careful, uh, you know, taking it off the shelf, taking the record out from the sleeve, putting it carefully on the turntable, lowering the needle onto the uh, the grooves. It just seems to be something that requires more of our attention intrinsically. It, it, it's funny. My, I have a 15-year-old daughter just turning 16 and, of course, has gone through the vinyl thing and has a turntable in her room and such. And I'll never forget when she got it a couple of Christmases ago and bringing up some albums for her to play and putting it on for her. And she said, well, how do I get to the next track? <laughs> what do yeah. I do? What do I push to get to the next track? It's like, well, you lift the needle up and you go to the next where the grooves are apart and you put it back down again. It was it's hilarious to almost have to explain that to her. Yeah, there is a certain amount of interactivity that we have with vinyl that we don't have with any other format. Um, maybe with with cassettes, but I don't think anybody is really all that fond of fast forwarding and rewinding through something that you, you can't see. You no, I think that I think the appeal of, of cassettes were that you could make the mixtape. That was the origin of the mixtape. That's where that started. Yeah, that, and you could play them in the car. Yeah, exactly. And that that was about it. Vinyl, you know, it's it's that thing that you have to take very great care with. And it also is, is appeals to, to a certain snobbishness because you know, look how many linear feet of music I have in my house. Yeah. Look how much I, <laughs> I love music. I am willing to deal with this really inconvenient, highly interactive, finicky format. That's how much I care. It was about the collection. It, it was. And it was a collection that you could display. Yeah. And somehow... You know, 12 by 12 inch records were much more fun to display than five or six by six inch CD cases. So, where is this going, and how are we ripping off the listener? Are we ripping off the consumer? It seems like we're only being half satisfied here. I don't know. Um, I think what we're seeing is a stratification and segmentation of different musical formats for different needs and different musical tastes. There are people who love vinyl for its warmth. There are people who love CDs for their convenience and their um, faithful audio reproduction. There are people who love MP3s, again, for more convenience and, and don't really care necessarily about audio quality. So uh, it, there's something for everybody. But what I find interesting is it doesn't seem to be anything beyond what we've got. There is no format on the horizon, except maybe those people who are pushing uh, what's called high-resolution audio, which sounds really, really good, but it's a, it's a form of digital file that requires a specific type of player to enjoy it. And you really need to have proper speakers or headphones to, to really, really get into high-resolution audio. But uh, you know, we just keep coming back to the vinyl record because eh, it, it's, it's always worked. It will continue to work. And if you look at plastic, you know, polyvinyl chloride, uh, you, you, you feel... 
take any album, throw it out into a field, and then go back 2,000 years <laughs> later, and that record's still out there in the field, and you can probably still play it. Yes. 22 explosive hits still sitting there in that farmer's field. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'd play that, though. How has, how has the format changing like this, how has that changed life, business for the artist? For example... Obviously, if you're producing 12-inch albums, side A, side B, there's, uh, when you go into a studio, you're going in for a, a certain reason, to produce this album. Now that the format doesn't really dictate the recording session, how has that changed life for the artist? Well, you would think that because there is no length limit on a digital file, yeah. that people would be releasing more music or longer songs. That's not really what's happening. If you look at the world of hip-hop, the emphasis has become on fewer songs of higher quality rather than many songs, many of which may may be of dubious quality. I always go back to the Red Hot Chili Peppers album from 1991, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. The CD at the time could hold 74 minutes worth of music. The Chili Peppers managed to cram that CD with 73 minutes and 55 seconds worth of music. And they thought, well, look at the, the, the value that we're giving our, our fans. We're giving them all these songs. Well, that's not necessarily what we want. We want good songs. So if you look at Pusha T, who has just released a, a, a record that has seven songs that run 21 minutes, or Kanye, who released an album recently that had seven songs in 25 minutes, or if we look at guys like, like Drake, for example, who are, are dribbling out songs you know, once every couple of weeks, Rather than this two- and three- and four-year build-up before you release 12 songs at a time, this may be the way things are going. And we may be seeing the slow death of the album Hmm. in favor of these individual songs or shorter collections of songs. Well, again, you know, the normal life used to be, if there is such a thing, for an artist was they would write, they would write, then they would record, they would record, and then when that was finished, they would take the material on tour and try to sell it. That seems to be different now in the sense that if you got a song, you just release it. So it's more of a continuing process than in various stages like it was in the old days. Yeah, it's called the drip process. You're always dripping out new material. We've seen some bands like Muse, for example, try to imitate what the hip-hop artists are doing with some decent success. Because if you're putting out something every six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is, you're always in front of the public. You're always giving your fans something but you're not overwhelming them with too much material. I think back to what Green Day did a number of years ago, where they, you know, it seemed every second week there was a new Green Day album or Green Day solo album, and it was just too much. Uh, You just couldn't digest all that stuff, especially since there was so much other music out there. But if you dribble out one song, well, then you can put all your marketing and promotional uh, uh, um, efforts into getting that one song out there, and that you know, done several times a year might be a better allocation of resources than waiting four years before you put up a new album. So, you know, we're thinking that this is technology that's driving all of this. Is it marketing that's driving this? Because in the old days, what I just said, you know, writing, uh, producing, uh, recording, uh, and touring and such, many of the record companies would say, man, if you're out of the limelight for a year, you're done, you're gone. I mean, it's like this huge gap. In a sense, this is a better, a better way of marketing an artist. It is the battle for attention. Uh, every week 
uh, sorry, every day, 24,000 new songs are uploaded to all the streaming services. That means every six weeks, another million songs get uploaded to the streaming services. That means every year, almost 9 million songs get uploaded to the streaming services. How do you cut through that noise? Certainly by not adding to that number in any massive way, but maybe by making each individual song an event so that people will actually pay attention to you. So as a result, is the collection dead and the, the, the future streaming services? And, that, you know, if I can do the comparison to a shirt, well, I may wear a shirt for a year, two years, and then it's done and it's gone. And five or ten years later, you know what? I'd love to have that shirt back, but it's run its course. Well, at least with an album CD, I mean, I'm sure you've got many that you've had for years. Are we missing out on that collection? Well, people don't seem to be all that interested about it. If they, if they want a collection, they'll go out and buy the CD or they'll go out and buy the vinyl. But the vast majority of people, they just want that song. Yeah. And albums for them mean nothing. What they want are the playlists. Give me a bunch of hand-picked songs yeah. just for me that make me, that make me happy. But it's and for you for the time. It's, this is what yeah. I'm listening to now. Uh, what happens when all of a sudden you think, you know what, I'd like to hear something that I had 10 years ago. Is it still yeah. on that streaming service? Is it still available? Uh, probably will be, but at the same time, it'll probably be buried under so many other songs that you may not want to go back or may not even think about going back to listen to those songs. We're into a whole new era of how people consume music. We grow up and in our teens, we consume so much music and this becomes so much part of our lives and then by the time we are, we're 30 we're kind of tired of, of having to go through the hassle of finding new music so we just rely on what we used to listen to sure what are you know where are the 15 16 17 year olds going to be when they turn 30 hmm. what kind of music are they going to be consuming what era of music are they going to be consuming and how are they going to be consuming it it we don't know this this is a one big social experiment and uh, I'll, I'll have an answer for you hmm. probably about 2032. You know, Alan, you bring up another interesting point that young people, like my kids, have this vast knowledge of music that I never had simply because of how old modern pop music is, if you want to go back to, say, the early mid-50s. They, they have an incredible knowledge of all of this past product. Will the next generations have that? Will they have that depth? I did a survey in a class that I was teaching a couple of years ago. I asked people to pull out their phones and to read off all the songs that they had on their playlist in alphabetical order. And the width and breadth and depth of each individual playlist was fascinating. There was the brand new song from Drake. There was something Cardi B. Oh, wait, there's some Led Zeppelin. Oh, wait, there's some Beatles. Oh, there's some Nirvana. Oh, there's something from the late 90s, uh, like... uh, Puffy Combs or something. And uh, I said to them, look, at you're different from any other generation because your musical tastes are far broader, far more ecumenical than it was in the past when everybody was so tribal about their musical allegiances. Now you don't, you don't have those same allegiances. You're free to listen to whatever songs you want, whatever you want to listen to them from whatever era. So how is that going to impact on their listening habits going forward? We don't know. And it's going to be fascinating to watch. Will the format become uh, irrelevant as long as they get the music? They don't care what form it takes between now and their middle age years? It's got to be convenient. Uh, unless they are the kind of people that want to have a collection and show off their 
you know, their devotion to music by using a very, very inconvenient format, it, it has to be convenient. So this is why we're having a lot of people uh, away, getting away from high-fidelity sound, because it's just too much trouble. If you just have your phone and a pair of decent earbuds or uh, a set of horrible Beats headphones, they are terrible headphones, by the way. Uh, Don't tell my kids that. Oh, they, <laughs> there's your problem, because all they, all they hear is the bass. Yeah, they hear the, I know. The, the glorious you know, production that went into making those songs. Uh, but as long as it's convenient, convenient will, convenience will always trump quality. Yeah. And uh, unless things get a whole lot better in terms of quality, uh, yeah, I don't know how you convince people to actually give up the convenience for what they would consider maybe to be marginally better sound. Hey, before we bought this cheap turntable thing for my daughter, I said, I have downstairs some original stuff. It's still great quality. It's still, I can literally create for them what I had as a young person, as a listening experience. I can do it. And I was loving it. I was thinking this is going to be great. They didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted this stupid little cheap thing that, you know, uh, has a puny speaker and, and plays the records as opposed to what we had back in the day. Interesting thing too, there's a professor in California who would test musical, uh, the, uh, who would test the idea of musical beauty, sonic quality and beauty, with the incoming class every year. And he would play them something from a high-fidelity sound system and then play something from laptop speakers. And every year, the people who came in said that the music coming out of the laptop speakers was more beautiful than the music coming out of the high-fidelity sound system, showing you that generations are having radical shifts in what they consider to be beautiful sound. Hmm. Alan Cross has been with us, music journalist. Alan, as always, uh, a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. The uh, column is on the Global site. Happy 70th birthday to the Modern Record album. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.